please let yourself come back in, find a way to sit that is comfortable and at ease. And as you sit and listen, um, in a way to listen to uh, Dharma teachings is a kind of meditation in itself. That is to say, it's an opportunity for reflection or contemplation. Um, and to notice what resonates as true in yourself, what seems of value, what doesn't seem true. Then you can throw that away or discard it or think about it in another time or in another way. So it's not, the point is not actually to give you something that you have to take, but rather to remind you, at best, to remind you of something that you already know. The rest of it you can leave here. This is the dump. We're fine at recycling and that's kind of how meditation works. Right. So sit comfortably, please. Mm. And. When I've been away traveling and I return, one of the things that I find myself wanting to do as I come back is start with some traditional teachings and then, then build on those in weeks that follow. Um, so tonight I'm going to speak on a quite traditional topic um, that I have done over the years on karma. Um, and then next week, transform that and talk, teach about redemption. So, um, again, let yourself listen. And, and part of the purpose of this kind of reflection is really to understand what do we know, and more than that, how do we navigate the mystery of incarnation, of being alive? Because I don't know how you got in there. In fact, I don't even know how I got in here, right? But here we are in these weird bodies with a, you know, round, sort of roundish head with a little fur, some left on the top, and this funny way of ambulating which you fall one direction and catch yourself and then you lean the other way and catch yourself. I mean, bipedal motion is kind of comical, actually. It is, you know. And little vestiges of claws and your nails that grow and a... Um, at the bottom of your spine, what's left of the tail that you used to have in some other incarnation. I mean, it's strange to be in a human animal body. It is, you have to admit that, right? And as I say, with the hole at the top where you stuff dead plants and animals several times a day and grind them up. How did you get in there, right? And, and who are you, you know? Are you this food body, you know, that's made of, I don't know, broccoli and um, vegan things mixed with an occasional burger or whatever it is. I mean, who, who are you? So Albert Einstein, <clears throat> Albert Einstein says, the most beautiful and most profound emotion we can experience is the sensation of the mystical. It is the sower or the seed of all true science. And for one whom this emotion is a stranger who can no longer wonder and stand wrapped in awe, is as good as dead. So in a certain way to enter the field of meditation, if you will, um, is to stop um, our habitual way of 
living in the world, which is a fine thing of getting our tasks done and navigating, you know, the responsibilities and checking off the things in our checklist and so forth, to take a pause and a breath and open our eyes and our hearts and say, this is really amazing. And what are we doing with this? And how do we navigate? How do we live wisely in this human realm that we find ourselves in, in some mysterious way? My daughter just got back from doing a summer internship around the world court in Cambodia, the war crimes tribunal. She's at in law school in Berkeley. And um, I was very moved by the work she was doing. She met some years ago, several times, um, one of my good friends and teachers, a man named Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize a number of times. And now she find her, found herself back working with some of his colleagues and others. There was the legal part, which was this whole genocide trial. Um, and then there was a healing part that they were trying, her group was trying to help put the two together, more like the South African um, Truth and Reconciliation um, work. Um, she brought me back a book that's very moving and very difficult called Eyes on Darkness, um, that are the stories of people who were in the Cambodian um, genocide. And she was there as they took people back to the killing fields or the prisons and had them stand up, and not this wasn't the legal briefs to the court, but to, to stand up and recount their stories witnessed by their friends and family and colleagues and chants of Buddhist monks and a whole altar that was made. And, a, and then they would make art. They would draw pictures of what happened to them and then how they have changed over the years since that happened. And the, the drawings would break your heart, but they're also extremely moving. So trying to wed together the legal part of justice with the part of healing that's necessary. And I worked for some years with my friend Mahagosananda in different ways, lived in monasteries with him. And during that period, the, the Khmer Rouge time, many of the monks in Cambodia were killed. He wasn't because he was on the Thai side of the border in this temple that I lived with him for some period. And um, almost all his family, I think 19 out of the 20 family members were killed. So that when there was a call to those elders who remained after that war to go back to Cambodia. He said, I have to go. And for 15 years, he led um, peace marches across the warring parts of Cambodia. The UN wanted to bring all the members of the, these huge refugee camps on the Thai border, Sakeo Kawidung, take them by buses back to their villages. And he said, no. He said, the suffering has been too great and if you are just placed back there, you will be in the middle of it. We have to walk. And as we walk, every step we will do the chant of loving kindness meditation. Um, and we will walk 100 or 200 miles, even though the roads are, are filled with landmines, so that as you walk doing the chant of metta or loving kindness, you will reclaim this land of war into a land of love. And um, when he died, which was just a couple of years ago, there was this wonderful obituary in The Economist magazine. It was the best obituary, you know, and here's the last paragraph. 
After 1980, he was made much of. He represented the Cambodian government at the United Nations in the peace talks. He was made the supreme head of Cambodian Buddhism, nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. He founded more than 50 temples across the world. But his first priority lay elsewhere. It was to appear bird-like, this little tiny man, out of the Cambodian forest um, with a bell and a chant to surprise a man digging or a woman washing and to remind them that the power of love was stronger than the forces of history. To chant to them, hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. To appear, to sing this song or this chant, and then to move on. And I guess I start with this story um, because maybe there's only one point that the whole talk tonight will be about in karma, um, which is that here we are in this human realm with the vicissitudes that are called the worldly winds of praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain um, and fame and disrepute with all the changing forces of the world. Um, how do we respond to that which is given to us through whether you call it karma or fate or destiny? Um, the circumstances that we find ourselves in are sometimes amenable to our control. But more often than not, have you noticed? <laughs> Try controlling the people around you, see how it works, see how they like it, your family members, you know, or others. How is it that we navigate wisely? So I remember also, I guess I'm telling stories tonight, so be it. Um, when the Dalai Lama first came to the U.S. in the 19, late 1970s, and he came to our center in Massachusetts, he also was invited to give this distinguished annual lecture at Harvard University, co-sponsored by the Divinity School and the Department of Philosophy and things like that. And he got up, and for three hours he turned into the Geshe, which is like the PhD of the Tibetan philosophical system, and gave this lecture on Nagarjuna and Yogacara and Madhyamaka that I don't think anybody in the room really understood very well. Maybe his translator. <laughs> and it was kind of, I, I had this feeling, it wasn't exactly showing off, I won't, but, but there was a little bit of that. It was like, okay, I'm at Harvard, and you people, you know, are supposed to be the smart ones in this country. And I just want to show you, you know, the Tibetan stuff that we have. We'll, we'll, you, the philosophers, will meet you. And they like to ha debate, you know, all right, take this. Now see what you can do with it. So it was a little bit of that. It was fabulous, actually. Um, and he finished his talk and he looked out and he said, you know, some of you may not have understood what I was speaking about. All this stuff of different dimensions of emptiness. He said, does not matter. He said, if you understand anything, maybe you should understand karma. <laughs> that will help you. But he didn't explain it then. He left that for some <laughs> other time. <laughs> so I'll do my best. Thank you, Your Holiness. Right. So let's talk about karma. And I want to talk about it in ways that are both classical, but also that give some feel for it. So it's going to connect karma with compassion, karma with dignity, karma with freedom or liberation, all of these dimensions. Um, we hear the word karma all the time. 
you know, you, it's become part of the modern language and so forth. And there was actually an ad, I mean, I hear it on the radio periodically, advertisements for things, of, you know, and it's good karma to get this or that. But I saw an ad in the, I don't know, some Berkeley paper. It says, want to be rich, fabulously wealthy? Let's face it, the only way to fabulous wealth is to be born into it. Well, you've blown it this time around, but now there's a way. The reincarnation connection next lifetime guarantee. Just send $25 to the reincarnation next time lifetime guarantee for our guaranteed certificate of good karma the next time. Royalty, sports fame, we deliver or your money back. It says, okay, so here we are. Or you hear things like, he'll get his karma, right? Or something like that. Now, in the Buddhist text called the Avatamsaka Sutra, which is a description of all these amazing universes, the universes made of stone and of fire and of perfumes and galaxies made of flowers and all the things you could possibly imagine, it says in all of these many realms, one of the things that remains true in all of them is the law of karma. Now, what actually is, then, the law of karma? What it says, basically, is that as you sow, so shall ye reap, or if you plant a mango seed, you will not get a pear. You will get a mango. If you plant an acorn, you get an oak tree. And it turns out that um, in this human incarnation, I think of karma a little bit like I don't know, maybe abstract mathematicians feel that math is like music, that it's kind of the, the numbers and the math formulas are like the hidden structure of the universe, that karma is a little bit like the music of emptiness, which is to say that there's this mystery that we're born into, um, but it's not a chaotic mystery. It actually unfolds in this beautiful way according to certain musical patterns, if you will. You start in the tonic, if we're using a diatonic scale, and you go these different ways and get to the seventh and you come back to the tonic. There's a, there's a law or a set of laws that govern um, this mystery of life. Um, and karma is one of the most central ones. And in order to live wisely, we have to understand or see for ourselves how this operates. And this is the, the reason that the Buddha taught it. He didn't teach it because you're supposed to believe it or have some new philosophy that you can use to, you know, um, impress somebody or judge yourself or any other kind of useless thing with it. But really for you to look for yourself and see how can I live with dignity, with freedom um, in this incarnation. Here's one of the principles to pay attention to. All things in our experience arise due to conditions. And the Buddha saw each being wanting happiness, kind of with the great eye of compassion. Beings want happiness, but often doing the very things that would make unhappiness. And he said, well, let me try to explain so that they too might understand what brings happiness. Um, One other little aside, 
Karma is not, people sometimes misunderstand, karma is not meant to be the law that describes everything in the universe. Even in the, in the Buddhist text, he will say, for example, that, you know, earthquakes are not something that fall under the normal description of the law of karma. Karma is primarily about human life, okay? Now it happens that we're at a point where human life is affecting the global climate, so there's some karmic interaction there. But it's, it's important not to try to take, it's, karma is really mysterious and hard to understand, not to take it and try to apply it to everything. Apply it to your own life first and see how it operates. So I remember going to visit my grandmother at one point, and she was living in assisted living. Um, and my grandmother was a kind of cantankerous person who was pretty judgmental about most things. I liked her, you know, sometimes cantankerous people are also quite interesting. But I noticed it in the lobby where people would congregate in this assisted living at one part of the lobby. There were the people who complained a lot. That was her lot, her people, her <laughs> tribe. You know, the mailman, oh, he's late. Why did he come late again today? And he never brings any mail for me. Nobody ever writes. And the food, did you see what they cooked today? And it's just, that's, that was the relationship to the world. There was another group in the lobby that was really um, appreciative and friendly. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but I noticed that those people congregated together and they'd say hi to the mailman and they would be really appreciative and they'd talk about, you know, their children or whatever. And you could see somehow the patterns that people had lived and practiced become more and more set until it was like set in stone in a certain way. And I remember, this is not really fair, it's a little bit prejudiced, but I do it anyway for the amusement of it. I was teaching a retreat in Switzerland, um, and I was struck because in Switzerland you get people from all around Europe, German and French and Italian and so forth, by the, um, not always, but by the typical, if not unfortunately stereotypical um, uh, uh, kind of qualities that I found in people who came from different cultures or different parts of Switzerland. So there would be um, the Swiss Germans who, not everyone, but many of them were very precise and very clear and also unfortunately very hard on themselves and very such self-judgmental and just trying to do it right, you know. And then the French part of Switzerland would come in and it was much more existential. Why should I do, who gives a shit man, you know? <laughs> this is, why should I be doing this, you know? I could go out and have a good time. And then the people from the Italian part of Switzerland would come in and so many feelings, such a happiness, sitting and this big thing happened and this and so much emotion, you know. And I mean, you know what I'm talking about. These are patterns of temperament. And somebody once raised their hand to Chogyam Trumpa, the Tibetan Lama, and said, I don't understand. In Buddhism, it's taught selflessness and emptiness. What exactly is it that's reborn? And he looked out and he said, your habits, <laughs> maybe your bad habits, I forget exactly what he said, but anyway, you could start to see um, how the patterns of mind, be as they're repeated, um, become the music, if you will, of your life. You understand this? Now, when, when we start to look at this, of course, some people want to get rid of their personality or a personality trap. If I meditate, I'll get a new personality, or something like that. Um, 
but it turns out that it's not possible. Um, Ramdas puts it much better. He talks about becoming the connoisseur of his neurosis. All right, this is just the way that it is. Or Gandhi, who said, I have three enemies. My favorite enemy, the one most easily influenced for the better, is the entire British Empire, right? Which he did quite well with. My second enemy, much more difficult, is the Indian people. And if you've ever been to India, you understand his difficulty. He said, but my most formidable opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence, right? <laughs> and so the point, when you start to see patterns, is not to say, all right, I need a personality transplant, I'm going to get rid of myself and become a new person. Um, but rather to understand these patterns and say, what would it be if I took this pattern of my life and the circumstances and lived it with greater dignity, with greater attention, with greater compassion to myself and to that which I touch? The image that's used often is of a poison tree. And one response to the tree that has poison fruit on it is, let's just cut it down, let's get rid of it. And that's a kind of limited response. It has some value to it. You can see things that are unskillful and say, I want to get rid of these. Uh, another level of response is to feel compassion for the tree as well as everything else and maybe put a little fence around it and a sign saying poison fruit so people don't eat it, but you don't have to kill the tree. I mean, we're going around killing all kinds of things on this world because we think that they're not valuable or not useless, um, but they might have some right to exist in themselves. The third and most interesting one is to see that in the poison of the tree is actually a kind of medicine. That there's something that you can use to transform even the difficulty into something of value. Um, let me see if I can give you an example, story example. A man who lives in Marin, who I admire quite a lot, is a fellow named David Roach. Some of you may know him. He's the founder of the Church of 80% Sincerity. <laughs> and David, David has a profoundly disfigured face. He was born with part of his jaw missing, and it's, it's um, really quite striking and, and serious. And he goes around and teaches at middle schools, primarily. He'll get up and he'll talk about the Church of 80% Sincerity, which he says is pretty good, 80% compassionate, 80% wise, 80% celibate, whatever, you know. <laughs> and he talks about trusting the reality of unconditioned love, which acknowledges that it has a shelf life of about 10 seconds. Darling, I'll love you till the end of dinner or something like that. <laughs> he's funny, he's wise, he's married to this very beautiful woman who sometime will come with him. And he says, all right, look at me. Here I am, the worst thing you can possibly imagine for yourself. What if I were like you, you might say to yourself. But of course, most teenagers actually think that they're deformed at some point. They do, that their body looks weird and well, it's terrible. You go through, your body changes and it doesn't seem right to you and so forth. And here he is, you know, and then he starts to talk about all the things he went through, his self-pity and his fears and how hard it is you know, to be a human being and then to be born in a body that's not perfect the way you want it to be. Um, and by the time he's done, he has such humor and such love and such a shining spirit that he'll say to them, all right, now look at me. 
how do I look to you? Do I look the same as when you walked in an hour ago? And people will raise their hand and say, no. You know, now we can actually look at you. Now we see who you are. Now we see who you really are. And what would it mean for us to take the limitations and the difficulties that are part of our particular incarnation, our personality and the life we've been given, like that tree that I talked about, and turn even the things that are difficult into something that has dignity and beauty in it. And that's a kind of reflection in karma. So karma speaks more than anything to our response to the world and to the forces in the human heart, we'll say, taking it in its most more psychological sense. And these forces are not small. There is warfare right now in, I don't know, 63 countries. I don't know how many it is, I lose count. And we are a pretty warlike nation so that there have not been many gaps in the last hundred years or more where we haven't been at war, which is a kind of karma that we all share, I'm sorry to say. Um, the karma of tribalism and um, of greed and the destruction of the environment and the rainforests and so forth, the, the karma, the the forces not just of greed, of hatred, of racism and tribalism that are rampant in the world. Um, the Buddha said that the tears that you've shed in this long way are greater than the waters in the four great oceans. This is how much misunderstanding and the pain of greed and hatred and ignorance in humanity has caused in this world. So we're not talking about small things. This is huge energies of the psyche and of the mind and so forth. Um, of this great dance that we're born into. What do we do with this? Because you participate in the dance of birth and death. Death is real. You know, it comes. It will. And I remember the story of Ramakrishna, who was um, a great Indian saint and, and kind of devotional. He was devoted to the, to the um, great mother and to the kind of amazing force of the feminine, to Kali as the goddess who creates and destroys the, the world. Um, and he prayed to the Divine Mother for a vision that he might see her. And at one point he was sitting on the side of the Hooghly River or the Ganges uh, outside of Calcutta in a kind of ecstatic state and out of the waters of the river appeared this amazing huge goddess with great you know, dark eyes and water streaming out of her hair. And as she rose out of the river, she spread her legs and from her vagina, she gave birth to the whole world. He could see every being just pouring out of her body while she looked at him. And he thought, well, this is, you know, this is already an amazing vision, you know, of the, the creative force of the feminine, of life itself. Um, and while he was resting with that vision of this the, the love of creativity of all things, you know, coming out of the, the, the force of life of the world, she reached down and picked up some of the babies and put them in her mouth and chewed them. And the blood ran down her chin and across her breasts and she looked him in the eye and then sank beneath the river. And he said, oh, okay, I was praying to the Great Mother but I didn't realize what I was asking for. Um, 
I mean, it's, a, it's an ex- extreme image of you, if you will, but it also is the truth of what we're born into, both birth and death, joy and sorrow, gain and loss. It's, this is the human realm. And these are big forces, and karma, it says, can change like the swish of a horse's tail. And you know that you can be going one place and all of a sudden there's an accident, you know, or a phone call and there's a diagnosis and the whole life you thought you were living turns in an entirely different way, doesn't it? So these are the kind of forces. Um, And they're with us depending how we act and how we live. We also carry our responses to the world in our hearts. So I've been working on occasion with vets coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and so forth. And, um, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of people coming back. And the problem isn't, as they will say, it's not just what I saw, which is difficult enough. I can't tell you what I saw, but I can't tell you what I did. This was a note placed at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Dear sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old the day we faced one another on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life I'll never know. You stared at me so long, holding your rifle, yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting the way I was trained. Over the years, I've stared at your picture and your daughter. There was a little picture of this soldier and his daughter. And each time my heart burns with guilt and before I have two daughters myself now. And now I understand you as a brave soldier defending your homeland. Above all else, I can respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that's why I am here today and you are not but it is time for me to continue my life and release all the pain and sorrow and guilt I carry. I leave your picture here and I ask you, please forgive me, sir. I ask for only one thing, forgive me. So it's said in the texts that at death, there are four kinds of karma, weighty karma, proximate karma, Weighty is heavy karma, near proximate karma, habitual karma, and random karma. And the image that's used um, is this, that weighty karma is like the image is used of, of cows in a barn or a pen and the gate is open. Weighty karma, if there's a bull, it just goes out first. And if you've done something really big in your life, something beautiful and magnificent or something terrible, that weighs on your soul. And it... it pulls the direction of your life, or if you believe in it in another life. But you don't have to believe that. You'll see, it's probably true, but you wait and see. (laughs) But leaving that aside for the moment, that's for you to find out. Um, Even from one day to another, you can feel the force of things that you've done that are weighty in beautiful ways or in difficult ways, and how it weighs on the heart. And then proximate karma is, if there's no bull, then it's the cow that's nearest the gate that goes first. Okay, and in that way, 
it is whether it's at the time of death or because death happens all the time actually a day ends and a new day begins whatever we're close to what we surround ourselves with what the circumstances are they start to that starts to bring various tendencies alive in us habitual karma is your habit when you you know end something and start something new what tends to go through the gate is the way we've done it habitually. So whatever cow is used to going out of the barn, if there's no bull, then the habitual cow will go, or out of the pen. And then finally it's random karma. If there's no bull and there's no habitual karma or cow, then whatever cow is closest, there's just some, some uh, opening to um, all of the possibilities and in some way a random selection of that or whatever arises. And karma has the force of causative karma, that things make experiences come into being and sustain them for a time. And then there's counteractive or destructive karma. Just like you plant a seed in the garden, um, that the seed is the causative karma, and then you sustain it by watering it and weeding and so forth, and fertilizing, and then the counteractive karma might be a drought or deer that come to eat the plant or or, or a fire, um, and then there's destructive karma when it reaches the end of its life. And you can kind of feel the arc of karma in your own life, of a certain amount of energy that you're given, and then at some point the dance is, you, your dance card is called. Um, now you hear about all of this, um, and it's not quite so straightforward, it's also mixed in a way so that you do things with mixed motivation. And there's a story of this person who fed the Buddha and did the, all these beautiful great deeds and built all these beautiful things. But then he was sort of sorry that he gave all his money away. And as the, as the story goes anyway, the next life he was born immensely wealthy for all the good things he did, but he was also a miser, so he couldn't enjoy his wealth. And I don't know that, you know, this is meant to be taken quite literally, um, but what it does is it points us to understand that there's mixed motivation. So here, a man who uh, wrote to the IRS saying, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return. I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest, <laughs> right? So, <clears throat> I mean, if you look honestly, it, you find things are, are mixed in there in terms of motivation. But we're really kind of w warming up to the, to the center point of this talk. And that is that the key to karma is intention. That is to say, we have these experiences, some of them painful, some of them pleasant, gain and loss, praise and blame, and so forth. They're always changing. And what creates karma, karma is a compound word, karma vipaka, is not so much karma which is the result. Um, I mean, karma which, karma vipaka. Um, my mind is getting confused now. Um, vipaka is the result, um, not the result, but the intention, what creates karma, is the, is the intention by which we respond to this event. And so let me give an example that makes it hopefully clear. Um, 
you can take um, a knife and use it to plunge it into somebody's body um, uh, and have them die and make different kinds of karma. You could do that exact action as a surgeon, maybe in some emergency, even picking up a knife because somebody is really in trouble and cutting open their body and trying to help them um, and not succeeding and they die. You could pick up the same knife and plunge it into that person's body as a murderer, you know, out of hatred and anger and so forth. The exact same action and that person would die, the same result, and yet you would make entirely different karma. Can you hear that? The, the seed or the root to karma and the way it operates in this dance of incarnation is what is your intention as you make an act. And one of the most beautiful and important things about learning to meditate, learning to be mindful, to quiet the mind, open the heart, is that we can begin to listen then to our response to the circumstances of life because you're going to get tough things that come to you and difficult ones and beautiful ones and you can get entangled in the beautiful ones and grasp and greed and jealous and so forth. You can resist and get angry and upset and, 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 and deny the, the, the terrible ones and those make a certain kind of karma. Or you can meet the changing circumstances of life with compassion for the difficulties, with graciousness and pleasure, the dance of that which is beautiful without and greed or hatred, instead with love, with graciousness, with dignity, with a generous heart. And those very same circumstances and the responses you make will create an entirely different life for you. And this, you know, one of the simplest ways to study um, how karma works is in speech. Um, when you're speaking to a person, and especially if you get in a little bit of conflict, which can happen on occasion, you've noticed. I mean, if I might perhaps ever have a conflict in my family, for example, with my wife, but it wouldn't happen, but just in case it might happen, <laughs> right? There is then, um, you can, I can feel inside, one part of me that wants to be right, that wants to make sure she understands my point of view, that, you know, that I get my thing that, that, that protects me or defends what I had to say. You know all those stances. Um, and if I speak from that place, it generally escalates. You know, I get irritated and I get judgmental and I say, this is, and I'm right and you're not, and so forth. On the other hand, if in that same conversation where I feel that tension and conflict, if I say, what did you mean? If I say, I want to understand, instead of being defensive or trying to protect myself or trying to be right, I become curious. I become open. I become interested. I might even become compassionate. I might say, well, what's, stop, pause for a moment and say, stepping back from the argument or the conflict, what is my highest intention? Here's where karma becomes really practical. When you pause, you take a breath and you say, what is my highest intention? What is my best intention? And all of a sudden things reorient inside yourself and you realize, oh, my highest intention is I love this person or I want to communicate or even if it's somebody you know in business or wherever where you've had difficulty, it's to find some way to work together to make this work and not just be terrible. And if you ask 
and then tune yourself to that intention, the very same conversation will go in a different direction. Does this make sense to you? And you can feel into it. This is, the, this is kind of the immediate way of studying the law of cause and effect, in particular about the, the, the notion of intention and karma. Um, but the thing about intention is that we have to become aware of it. Uh, and that's why training ourselves, this capacity to be present, allows us not to act just out of habit. Because if you act out of habit, you end up like my grandmother did in one or another part of the lobby there, and I'll let you decide where you're going to end up, right? Um, because it becomes automatic and habitual. But there is, a f- there is a possibility for you of living with greater freedom, with greater ease, with greater dignity, with a great heart of compassion in this world by paying attention to the circumstances that come to you and then noticing because you're actually present, what is my intention in response? What do, I, what do I most want as I speak or act in response to this circumstance? I was uh, the moderator of a conference some years ago with the Dalai Lama, John Kabat-Zinn, and several Dharma friends, um, Richard Gere, whose foundation helps support us, um, and 25 people coming out of Dharma prison programs around the country. There's now programs in San Quentin and in many, many other prisons around the country, the Prison Dharma Network, if anyone's interested, kind of catalogs them. And these were folks who'd been in Oregon State Prison for 18 years, or you know Texas for 22 years, and um, done really hard time, but somehow had gotten the books like we're all doing time, or someone had gone to visit them or given them teachings. And as I found, you know, going into San Quentin, there will be certain people who say, "When I was 18, lifers. When I was 18, I got messed up on drugs, and you know, I did something horrible." whatever it happened to have been, some terrible thing, you know, and it's 25 years later, and I'm not that person anymore. And they really do amazing work to train and learn who they are and transform themselves, and you see that they're not. There's so much generosity and, and um, love sometimes in these guys, or women. And a friend of mine who works in the maximum security women's prison in New York, and of course one of the things that's true is that 95% or more of the women who are in that prison were raped or abused in some terrible way before they committed any kind of crime. I mean, it's really a holding pen for people who are victims. But anyway, we had this group, and the Dalai Lama brought to this um, two or three of the young nuns who'd been thrown in prison in Tibet for uh, reciting their prayers in public or saying the name of the Dalai Lama, and they'd been in prison for five, seven, eight years, tortured sometimes, and somehow they got out of prison, walked over the mountains, they escaped. So the Dropchi 7 or Dropchi 14, whatever they were. And um, so the, they looked young. They were probably in their late 20s now. Um, 
and they talked about how they responded to prison. They talked to these other guys and women who'd been in the state prisons. They said, yeah, we had it tough. They tortured us, you know, cattle prods. They did all these terrible things. And, um, and, and, and we kept doing our meditation. We kept chanting anyway, and they tried to stop us. And did, were you ever worried in there? Um, yeah. Well, what were you worried about? We were worried that we would lose compassion for our guards because they were making such terrible karma and we knew it would come back to them and we really felt so much sympathy for them. For They were doing terrible things that were going to come back to them and we, the only thing we worried about was losing our compassion. And these guys, you know, coming out of Texas saying, i seen brave people, but i never seen anything like you young ladies. You know, I've never seen this before. And it was kind of extraordinary to sit in that room and they were all beautiful. Um, when we understand karma and compassion, there's a kind of natural forgiveness that comes. This from Zen poet Ed, Ed Brown, who wrote, any moment preparing this meal, we could be gassed 30,000 feet in the air to fall out poisonous on leaf, frond, and fur. I guess this was written back when we were more worried about nuclear war. Everything in sight would cease and still we cook, this was in one of his beautiful cookbooks, putting a thousand cherished dreams on the table to nourish and reassure those close and dear. In this act of cooking, I bid farewell. Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant my eyes open and I regard you with all the tenderness and forgiveness I withheld for so long. And this is really where karma begins to intersect with freedom. Because yes, we receive the results of karma and from the past in some way or other, we have the destiny and circumstances that come to us. And you do, you know, in your life, certain relationships, certain losses or gains, certain beautiful things, certain amount of money, certain success or not, but it can change. Then the question is, um, what what dance do you do with that? Here is David Roach, given this disfigured face. What do you do with what's given to you? And if you want to know what to do with it in some way, look into your deepest intention. Because what matters is intention. And what also matters, I'm sorry to tell you, is most importantly only one person's karma. And you know who that's, that is, right? As Miss Piggy would say, moi, you know? So, um, so mysterious. Uh, I tell this story often of being in India with my wife 30 years ago um, on a mountaintop studying with Vimla Thakar, this very wonderful sage. She, she was a great yogi and meditation teacher. And... My wife had this whole vision of someone in her family dying and she came, talked to me, and I said, you know, in meditation, one of the things that happen is you face your birth and your death and you really sit in, in the presence of, you, of your life and your mortality. All these things will come up if you quiet yourself. You reflect on what you want to do with your life, what to make beautiful in it. I said, so don't worry, that's, that's just natural. Unfortunately, I was wrong. And 10 days later, we received a telegram that said, your brother Paul has died. And then when we looked, 
It was dated the same day she had that vision. And he died in the way that she had seen. And you've all heard these stories because they're true, because consciousness is actually connected. So we tend or care about our own intentions, and yet there's something, you can't do it because you're gonna try and fix somebody, but there's something mysterious that also connects how we live with the world around us. Rodney Smith, who's a Dharma teacher in Seattle and was the director of the biggest hospice in the Northwest for many, many years, he remembered, he remembered being with a family of um, uh, one older man who was in the hospice and very close to death. And they were out in the waiting room. They called Rodney to help them because the man's younger brother had died that day in a car accident. This guy was maybe in his 80s and his brother was like 70. Should we tell him? Should we not? It will disturb him. He's really close to death himself. Why should we disturb? Let him have a peaceful death. So they finally decided they weren't going to tell him. And they walked into the room, you know, and he was lying there sort of half in a coma, but coming out and in that in-between state, which, which we have between this, this life and what happens next. Um, kind of in a mysterious thing. Uh, and um, they stood there and said, hi, Papa, glad to see you. And um, talked to him for a little bit. And he said, um, do you have anything to tell me? And they said, what do you mean? Well, what about my brother? And they said, well, how do you know? And he said, oh, I've been talking to him since he died. Um, so I just tell you these stories because we're not having a conversation so much about um, just the ordinary things of the world but about something that's really deep, which is this incarnation that you're in. Um, and in it, then, there's something so mysterious, which is consciousness. And consciousness is shaped by intention. I mean, neuroscience is finding this now in all kinds of ways, that as we practice, and even prior to practicing, as we intend, you can sit and visualize yourself playing piano or basketball, and all kinds of synapses get strengthened, all kinds of neuro changes that can be measured happen because you simply visualize it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. And it turns out in this mystery that by attending to our intention with care and to our highest intention, if you pause and listen to that place of dignity and compassion, you shape the karma of your life, and in this case, in a beautiful way. I told this story some weeks ago, but I've been reading this kind of remarkable book called Tattoos on the Heart by Father Greg Boyle, who started Homeboy Industries down in Los Angeles and works a lot with gang kids, and, and um, I know some of these guys. Anyway, it turns out that it... Um, one of the churches in the projects where he worked, he went one morning early and somebody had spray painted across the face of the church, Wetback Church, in big letters, because it was a place where they, a lot of um, people who'd come across the border looking for work and so forth had gone for refuge. And it was sort of this ugly, huge spray painted thing. And he went in and he felt really bad, you know, like 
this was a disrespect to everything that the church stood for. And it was a Sunday morning service. And um, he said, I felt so chilled and could feel the hatred in it. And so I gathered, I sat with everyone, and I said, you know, one of the things, I'm so sorry, and one of the things we do at Homeboys, one of our projects with the city pays us for, is to erase graffiti. So I'll get some of the guys down here, and we'll get this going in a day or two. And as soon as he finished saying that, one of the old Spanish-speaking women of the congregation, who was quite short, stood up on a chair, waved her hands to get attention, and said, you will not clean that up. And he said, I, I could hardly understand why she was saying that. So I said, please say something more. And she said, you will not clean this up. If there are people in our community who are disparaged and hated and left out on the street because they are mojados, wetbacks, and then she poised as if ready to leap off her chair, then we shall be proud to call ourselves the wetback church. And all of a sudden a cheer went up. And you don't see cheers in churches that often from all the women and the men that were sitting there saying this is a church that is open to everyone, that serves everyone. So this is really what, what um, the essence of the Buddhist teaching on karma offers to you or to us as a gift. Um, the conditions of your life will change, gain and loss, praise and blame. Mind is the forerunner, heart is the forerunner. How will you respond? Take a breath, become attentive to yourself and notice what are the seeds that you wish to plant. Because another language for karma is the language of planting seeds. You know, as I started with the acorn or the mango seed and so forth. And you start to realize that the freedom that you have in this life, more than anything, is the freedom in your heart to choose your response in any given circumstance. That is your freedom. I remember this woman who came to see me who was in the middle of a really terrible divorce and she had married and was now getting divorced from a guy who was rich and smart and a lawyer and a tough lawyer. Um, and he was intent on keeping the money, you know, and getting as much custody as he could. And also in, and he was really bitter in some way and in making it painful for her. And so she suffered tremendously from that. She got a good lawyer, which was an important thing to do to protect herself and her children. Um, and she could feel all these feelings of bitterness and revenge and so forth. And she worked with them. The kids were like seven and... 11 or something like that. And then she came in one day and she said, I will not be taken over by his bitterness. I will not seek revenge. I will let the suffering stop with me. I will not pass, I will not pass this suffering on to my children. And um, there's so much dignity in that. That kind of, Partly it's forgiveness, partly it's just a willingness to say, all right, sometimes there's suffering and sometimes there's beauty and I can bear this and not, um, not add the seeds of suffering to continue. There's an old Zen story where in the monastery you're supposed to eat whatever's put in the bowl and it turned out that um, 
some fishermen, it was a Zen monastery on the coast, had brought a sea turtle in and offered it to the monastery for the for their meal and the cook had taken the turtle and cooked it up even though often the monasteries are vegetarian but you take what you're given and after, as he cooked uh, he cooked the meal and then he the the cook would go out with this big pot and ladle it into the bowls of all the monks and he started with the abbot and as he ladled the this the the turtle soup into the bowl of the abbot he ladled it all the way then he went back in the kitchen the abbot looked in his bowl, was starting to eat, and then shouted for the cook to come back and pointed, and there was the head of the turtle in the bowl by mistake. And the abbot pointed to the head of the turtle, and the cook took his chopsticks out of his pocket, took the head of the turtle outside up from the bowl, put it in his mouth, chewed it and ate it, and walked back in the kitchen. Um, and the point of the story is a little bit like the point of that woman in, in the divorce, it's somebody who's willing to say, all right, even in this difficult circumstance, um, I have a freedom, I have a choice to make. And when I was, was talking about traveling in Burma, um, the winter before last, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's been under house arrest for 17 years, no one will talk about her. Um, and uh, there I was, driving around Rangoon, um, leading this group to go down in the delta where there'd been the cyclone and build some schools and clinics, part of this pro project, a part of this board that I'm on. Um, we weren't allowed to say anything political because if we did, we would put at risk all the project and the people that we worked with could have been thrown in prison and tortured. So nothing. But I'm riding a cab and I, I look and I see in the visor inside is an Obama bumper sticker. Right, so I go, okay, maybe this guy's cool, right? I don't know. Um, I don't know what your politics are and whatever they are. Anyway, I was amused. So um, whatever yours are is fine with me. Um, we want Buddhist libertarians and Republicans and Democrats all alike. Um, but anyway, um, so I thought, all right, maybe I'll ask him about Aung San Suu Kyi because it's safe here. And I said to him, so um, I've been here for a while now doing work in school these projects and things like that. No one ever talks about Sue, you know. Um, have the Burmese people forgotten her? Because I never hear anything. And the minute I said her name, his eyes got really wide, like I was saying something terrible, and he kind of looked around, you know, like was something bad going to happen. And then he realized that it wasn't, I wasn't a spy or something dangerous. And he said, no, he said, never talk about her, put his hand over, finger over his lips, never not safe. He said, never here, but always here. Put his hand on his heart. And here is this little woman. I talked about her last month or the month before. She's just my age, mid-60s, you know, not very big. Um, she could leave Burma anytime she wants. The general say, you can go, <clears throat> you're free to leave. But if you leave, you can't come back. She didn't leave when her husband was dying of cancer. When her children graduated from university in England, she couldn't go. <clears throat> and she says, I will not leave. I will not go. And I will not hate you. And I will not leave. And just her presence in Burma, this one person um, who carries the candle flame of the intention of love, I will not hate you and I I, I will see what's going on. I will see clearly. I will not leave. I will not hate you. 
is the illumination of the spirit of 50 million Burmese people. So the quality of intention that we bring has an enormous impact in this world. Karma really means intention. And yet it is this dance. It's not something that you can fix. You're actually flowing moment to moment. In the Hindu tradition, there's a poem that says, the child in the womb sings, do not let me forget who I really am. And then the first verse of the song when they are born is, oh dear, I'm forgetting already. Don't forget who you really are. Remember the fundamental freedom or nobility or dignity. Oh, nobly born, says the Buddha, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember that you are born with an innate freedom. And that freedom is to choose your spirit in any circumstance. Find ways to quiet yourself, to listen inside. And then it changes you. It changes your life. Uh, my colleague and dear friend here, Sylvia Borstein, she and her husband Seymour, who's a psychoanalyst, were friends with this man who was the president of the American Psychiatric Association, famous psycho, really famous analyst, who then got Alzheimer's and gradually lost almost all his memory, but stayed home. His wife sort of took care of him with some assistance. And they decided to go visit their friend um, one evening, and they went to his house, brought a big bottle of wine, rang the doorbell. Somebody they were really close to, he opened the door and looked at, him, looked at them like he had no idea. And he said, well, I don't know who you are, but whoever you are, come in and enjoy my home. You know, and he was this, he was somebody who was known for his love and his graciousness. And even though he didn't know who he was anymore, who anybody else was, what he knew that really mattered was still there with him. Now, I guess the last thing to say is that it's a kind of a paradox. Um, and everything's so paradoxical. You need to remember your Buddha nature and your social security number, right? That you have to have some practical grounding in the world, um, but not forget who you really are. Um, Mary Oliver's poet, she writes, for years and years, I tried to love my life just as it is. I mean, that's spiritual practice, most of it right there. I tried to learn just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, she said as she disappeared into the world. And this is a little of that paradox. T.S. Eliot writes, teach us to care and not to care. That even though intention matters and what you do matters enormously, and in your conversations and in the deeds and in the responses, you can make something really beautiful of your life no matter what's dealt to you. Um, it's a dance, and you can hold it with compassion and forgiveness and a certain lightness because we're here only for a, a short time. Sh too short, as Castaneda said, for witnessing all the marvels of it. How you act, 
will, how you respond, will determine in part the way the world responds to you. And you know people who are really generous or those who are really forgiving or really loving. It doesn't mean being foolish. This is really talking to the wisdom in you, how the world responds. Um, so this is also speaking to the great heart of a Buddha within you. Um, take the time to quiet yourself, find your way walking in the mountains, walk by the ocean, sit in meditation, listen to metta and loving kindness and compassion practice, forgiveness practice. All these things are trainings to learn how to live in this dance beautifully. And you can, that's what's given to you. Um, and the world really needs it. And, and um, there's no one quite like you. So let's sit for a moment. As you sit, let yourself reflect for just a minute on one of the difficult situations of your life. And ask yourself as you do, what is your highest intention? Your most beautiful intention. And let that be the seeds that you plant. Um, two more brief things. Dana needs a ride to Fairfax. Is there someone who can give her a ride?